Brothers and sisters, it is a great joy and privilege to be with you this month when you are celebrating 10 years of God's blessing upon you and your children. And those blessings are very obvious to those of us who even live a few hundred miles away. Your reputation goes way beyond Franklin. And all of us, especially in the Presbyterian world, are deeply grateful for you. And Nate, thank you for the privilege of joining with you in ministry today and being part of this great celebration. My heart is glad uh, for you and glad for the glory of God. It is, of course, a question for a preacher to ask himself, what do you say uh, to a church like Cornerstone uh, who during a pandemic when every other church is shrinking in attendance, you're growing and booming. What do you say to a church who in the first 10 years has already planted another church and has intentions to plant another one? What do you, what do you say to a church who has a musician who writes your hymns and the text for it? And what do you say to a church who has uh, such wonderful assistant pastors and a rock star for a senior pastor? Uh, what do you say to a church uh, like that? Well, the Apostle Paul undoubtedly was confronting a similar question because as he was under house arrest in Rome, it seems, he had time, more time to pray, for which we're grateful, but we're especially grateful, aren't we, that he had more time to write. So Paul's imprisonments gave us a good part of the New Testament, for which we're grateful. So don't, don't diminish the importance of your prison time when you get there. Uh, you need to write important letters. So the Apostle Paul, of course, was in prison for a good reason. If I go to jail, it will not be for a good reason, I'm quite confident, but I'll still write a letter. And he writes a letter to a beloved church. As a matter of fact, the church was about 10 years old, just a little over that. It was about 12 years old. They had passed their 10th anniversary, and they were an amazing church. Scholars usually suggest that the Philippians were Paul's favorite church. Now, I know we're not supposed to have favorites. You know, we don't have favorite children, do we? No, no, no. If we do, we lie and tell people we don't have a favorite child. But when you read Paul's epistles, it's quite obvious. His affection for these Macedonians was overflowing. There are reasons for this. Uh, for one thing, the Macedonians were very generous. And when Paul was preaching to the stingy Achaeans, he said, you need to be like the Macedonians, <laughs> who give even beyond one's ability to give. They're just so generous. And furthermore, they were the ones who provided the physical sustenance, the finances, for much of Paul's ministry after he planted that church. As a matter of fact, when they heard that their missionary, their church planter, their evangelist, their apostle, was under house arrest in Rome, they immediately took up a collection. And not only a collection, they sent one of their men, his name was Epaphroditus, they sent him all the way to Rome. Now, for you to go to Rome, you just need to drive to Nashville. You can take a couple of flights, and you'll be in Rome in a few hours. Uh, for Epaphroditus to travel uh, from Philippi, which is today northern Greece, to Rome, that was about a 600-mile trek. He may have done it by sea, but I suspect he did it on foot for the most part, except for crossing the sea over to Italy. 600 miles carrying the supplies from the Macedonians. It nearly killed him. 
In fact, one of Paul's intentions when right back to the Philippians was to assure them that their brother Epaphroditus was now okay. He nearly died on that trip. Now, this is how the Philippians love their missionary. So when Paul thinks of the Philippians, he almost automatically begins weeping with joy and affection. He feels very deeply for them. What's he going to say to a church like that? This outstanding church who had faced tremendous persecution and survived, who had provided the, for the apostle in his most desperate moments. What do you say to a church like that? Well, much like with Cornerstone, you have a big party, as Nate said, and you just celebrate and say, pass the chicken. I mean, what do, what do you do? Well, Paul has more than that. He has some words, as you would expect an apostle to do. He has words to say. And in Philippians, as we have also, for example, in Ephesians, we have record of Paul's prayers, or at least a summary of what he prays for. Now, if you looked at a summary of what I prayed for this past week, unfortunately, it would probably look like a hospital list. <laughs> I mean, it's good to pray for the sick, but often that's how we spend almost all of our time in prayer. And Paul certainly prayed for the sick, including Epaphroditus. But when you examine his prayers, you see that there's a profundity to them, a depth to them, a meaning to them that we really need to take seriously. So we're going to look at the first, the, just the opening verses of this affectionate letter to Paul's favorite church after a little more than 10 years. What would he say to them? And when he describes how he prays, I think we see what we need to hear as those who have been at it for 10 years. Let us open our Bibles then to Philippians chapter 1, and would you please stand with me as we read this text, and let us look to the Lord now and ask Him to open our minds to, to believe, to understand, and to put into practice what He says in His Word. Our Father in heaven, we thank You so much for revealing Your heart to us through the Apostle Paul and other prophets and apostles, and we assemble as their children, to worship you, to hear your voice, to respond to you, to gather around your table and to be fed by you through the word and sacrament. And we prayerfully ask now, Lord, speak, O Lord, for your servants listen through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, hear the word of God. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent 
And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I read that your pastor said in a recent pastoral letter to you, maybe you didn't read it, but I did. Uh, He said that this month is a time to do three things. They all start with R, like reading, writing, arithmetic. That's not what he said. He said to remember and to rejoice and to renew. I think that's a really good summary. I think the Apostle Paul thought that was a good summary too. Because in his letter... Uh, to the Philippians, he begins with the introduction, of course, in the first two verses, but then verses 3 through 11, he really describes for us how he is praying for the Philippians. Wouldn't it be wonderful to know how Nate Sheridan prays for the Cornerstone Presbyterians? Wouldn't it be wonderful to know how the Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father is praying for this church? right now? Wouldn't you love to hear his voice? What would his concerns be? What has made him glad at the right hand of God during these past 10 years? Well, we're taught in the Bible that this is the word of Christ. It is the word of God. And when we see what he puts upon the apostle's heart to pray, I suspect that would be the very heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the apostle himself says. So I want us to look at these verses very carefully and notice two things. First of all, in verses 1 through 8, we must give thanks for the work of God's grace in and through us. Let me put it more directly. You must give thanks for the gracious work of God in and through you for 10 years. It's a holy obligation. There's where Paul begins. You know, my mother taught me. uh, She died at 98, and she was very impatient. She said to my sister, why don't you let me go home? Get me out of here. And my sister explained to her there are some legal implications of, of passing someone on prematurely. But finally, she got to go home at 98. But one thing my mama taught me, she taught me a lot of things. But one thing was, you need to write thank you notes. Does your mother tell you that? Well, my mother taught me. Where does it come from? Because when someone's been gracious to you, you need to acknowledge it. And Paul is saying he has been gracious to you. Be sure you acknowledge it. And secondly, when you come into verses 9 through 11, we're going to see that we must always petition God to continue and expand his gracious work in and through us. Let me put it more personally. You... (laughs) must petition God, even this month, to continue and expand his gracious work through you. That's what the Apostle Paul is showing us when he writes this beloved church, the Philippians. So let's look at the first section, verses 1 through 8, and here we learn that we must give thanks to God for his gracious work in and through us for these past 10 years. Here's what the apostle notes about the Philippians. There are really three things for which he gives thanks. You'll see it in the text. First of all, in verse 1, he calls them saints. 
Now, some of you here may have a Roman Catholic background. I always love my Roman Catholics. They bring so many good things with them. Now, of course, they have to leave some things behind. We'll talk about that some other time. But they bring a lot of good things with them. Uh, but one of the things they have to leave behind is the idea that saints are just special people like the Apostle Paul or St. Francis or St. Peter or some other really highfalutin Christian uh, who's been declared uh, to be a saint and now to be in heaven and not in purgatory. Well, we kind of use the language ourselves that way. Well, you know, you know I'm, I'm no saint, we say. Or, she is a saint. Well, we misuse the term ourselves then, even as Protestants, because Paul's description, the biblical description of a saint, is merely one who's set apart. That's what saint means. You're set apart to belong to the Lord. You've been washed. You've been cleansed. You have been renewed by the Holy Spirit. You've been born again to a living hope that will never perish. You've been set aside for his purposes. That's what it means to be a saint. Paul's thinking back just 10 years or 12 years ago in his case about some of these saints. Like Lydia, a successful businesswoman who was kind of into her business. But when she heard the gospel... We're told in Acts chapter 16, the Lord opened her heart. Paul saw it. He saw this woman dramatically change before him. And she immediately wanted to be baptized as a Christian. And she had her whole household baptized, children too, because they were under her authority. So she had her household baptized. And she insisted to be the host for the Apostle Paul and the little church they had begun. Paul was amazed and how God had opened her heart. Have you ever witnessed to someone and in your presence you can see the light come on and they become Christians? I just, I'm just speechless when I see that. I realize I'm not clever enough to lead somebody to the Lord. Obviously, I want to share the gospel with them and tell them my own story, but I can't open a, a broken heart. And I just watch a miraculous work of God Paul is full of thanksgiving because Lydia became a saint. Well, not only Lydia. You remember there was a slave girl who had a demon and the owners of this little slave girl made money off of her because she was in the fortune-telling business. Well, Paul had the temerity to cast the demon out and ruin their business. And it created quite a furor. But in that little 10-year-old church, was a woman who used to be a slave and used to be full of a demon. And now she's worshiping Jesus Christ. He said, you're saints. I thank God for that. Well, that's not all. You remember that after the Fuhrer, the governing authorities abused the Apostle Paul and his companions. They whipped them and threw them into prison. And that night, God shook that prison and released the chains off of Paul's arms and legs to the amazement of the jailer. And you know in those days, if a jailer lost his prison, or prisoners, his life was lost too. So he was prepared to take his own life. And Paul and Silas said, don't do that. And the jailer had been listening to them sing hymns all night long in the midst of their misery, physical misery. They were rejoicing because of the conversions that had already taken place. And the Philippian jailer falls at their feet and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul had witnessed that. This man who is in Roman authority, in the Roman praetorium, 
he had become a believer. Paul says, I rejoice and give thanks because you're saints. Well, not only that, if you'll look in the text, you'll see not only were they saints, but they were partners in the ministry. He says in, in verse 5, uh, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I can tell you that the pastors in this church and the elders in this church are profoundly grateful for all these partners in gospel ministry. Of course, they're grateful to have brothers and sisters who have come to know the Lord and are coming to know the Lord, but they're grateful to have partners in ministry. Uh, I've served three churches as a permanent senior pastor and now two churches as an interim senior pastor. The advantage, of course, of being an interim, Nate, is that if they don't like you, it's not bad because you're leaving soon anyway. Who cares? Uh, so there's just much less pressure. You know, in your case, they, they really need to like you. So, uh, But in all those cases, I have partners for whom I am deeply, deeply grateful. My wife always makes fun of me at Christmas time because I'm filling out by hand 600 Christmas cards. She says, 600 Christmas cards? Why would... She said, you should be able to cut that down to 50 or 60 anyway. These are my partners. And they're not all my partners. But they're at least some of my partners. I noticed one time looking at my Christmas list, you know what they are? Except for extended family and the people I'm trying to reach evangelistically, these are my partners for the past 45 years in ministry. My closest friends are my partners in the gospel. It's amazing what gospel work does for relationships. And Paul, you can see in verse 3 especially, he's just overflowing with joy and affection. Why? These people stood with him in the gospel. And if you're a gospel minister, if you've given your life, and that is your agenda now, the kingdom of God, your, your best friends are going to be people who stand with you in that gospel ministry. So he rejoices because of their ministry partnership. But look at verse 6. He continues to rejoice because he says, this is going to have no end. He says, I'm quite confident that what God began in you just a little over a decade ago, he's going to continue until the day that he returns. I'm quite confident that he is going to keep you to the end. And so what I know when I look at the body of Christ, I look at the congregation where I live and serve, these are my brothers and sisters for the rest of my life. Now, I know <laughs> that could cause a problem when you have some conflicts. Oh, I have to live with that person forever. <laughs> well, here's what you must remember. <laughs> First of all, your patience is going to be infinitely expanded. But secondly, they're going to be transformed. And I have to say, there are a few Christians, I'm very eager to see what they're going to look like when they get transformed. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the day when, when they actually, are, I don't not only love them, but they're really lovable. You know what I mean? So uh, he says, this is going to endure to the very end. God is going to take you all the way. You know, the Lord does not compose unfinished symphonies. And what he begins, he completes, and he brings it all the way. You're in the very hands of Jesus Christ. 
You're in the very hands of his father. And Jesus says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. So the father is greater than I. And no one will snatch them out of the father's hand. He's going to keep you. So we have reasons to give thanks, to remember and to rejoice. And the apostle says, this is my holy obligation. I begin my prayer with thanksgiving. Do you begin your prayer with thanksgiving? When you think about your church, do you begin with overflowing, joyful thanksgiving? I assure you that the Apostle Paul, were he on earth today, would do that with Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. Now notice, secondly, that he then shows his aspirations for that church. You say, well, that's such an outstanding church. What could he possibly aspire to except that they just simply continue as they are? No, he wants them to continue. There's no question there. But he also wants them to grow, to go on in the Lord. And here we see that we must petition the Lord to continue and expand his gracious work in and through us. Now, when you look at verses 9 through 11, you can divide them into half. In the first half, he's going to show us what we would call approximate or a an immediate burden in his prayer. When you get toward the end of this prayer, in verses 10b and 11, you'll see a more ultimate burden of his prayer for the church that he so dearly loves. And I want us to look at both briefly. First of all, the immediate and proximate burden of his prayer. He prays for them to love and for them to love even more than they have been. Does this sound ungrateful on the part of the apostle? Does he not realize this is probably the most loving church on the planet? Even with a church like that, and I know this church is a loving church. You have that reputation. He says, even to the most loving church, he says, I want your love to grow more and more. Let it expand. And the reason is simply this. If you can speak in the voice of angels, but have not love, you're like a clanging gong and a tingling cymbal. You're just making noise if you don't love. When Jesus was asked, what, is the greatest, what are the greatest commandments? You remember what he said? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the summary of the law. Paul says the same thing in Romans. Here's a summary of the fulfillment of the entire law is to love. Love is what shows the world that we are the disciples of Jesus Christ. Our witness to the world apart from love sounds like a hypocritical, insincere clanging of a bell. It doesn't sound like a genuine communication. So the apostle says, let's take your very strength and let's say this is what we need to continue to build on. Let your love grow more and more. But notice how it grows. He doesn't say, let's let your love grow more and more with more sympathy or more sentiment toward one another. He says, no, let's let your love grow more and more with knowledge or in knowledge. You could translate it either way. And in depth of insight or in all discernment, what's he saying? 
He's saying that the love that you have, Philippians, that has been demonstrated to me and to the entire world, the whole universal church is talking about your love. Let's take your love. And here's how it needs to mature, he says. It needs to grow in knowledge. What does he mean? Well, what kind of knowledge could he be talking about? Well, for example, how about Romans 8.28? All things work together for the good, for those who love God are called according to his purpose. So when you're facing your most difficult moments, do you love the Lord? Do you trust him? Do you understand that he is in charge of all your life? When you think about how you love people who are confused on sexual morality, human sexuality, how do you love them? You must love them with the knowledge of Genesis 1 and 2, that God created us in his image, male and female, he created us. And he created Adam and Eve as two different genders to be in marriage with one another. And so I love my gay friends, and I have a number of them. I love them with knowledge that God has made us a certain way, and the best way for human flourishing and fulfillment is to know God's word. When I have a disagreement with someone, I don't just schmooze it over. No, knowledge comes to play. And you see, the Apostle Paul has a case like this. Even in a church like the one in Philippi, it's got problems. Even in a church like Cornerstone, I, know, I don't know what they are, but I know you've got problems. Well, if you look at chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, you'll see there are two very strong leadership women, very competent people who served with the Apostle in ministry. They're at odds with each other. And Paul names them out. Euodia and Syntyche, these dear sisters, they're leaders. Leaders often have big egos. Have you ever noticed that? And sometimes those egos clash. And he says, to the whole church, you help these women get together. It's the whole church's business. See, there's knowledge. That your relationship and your conflict with someone else is my business. Not just because I'm pastor, but because I'm brother. So Paul says to the entire church, these relationships have to be reconciled. Start with your leaders and go from there. When I was serving as an interim senior pastor in Birmingham, Alabama, at Covenant Presbyterian Church, one of our sister PCA churches, a delightful church, a very loving church, they, for a variety of reasons, some of which were beyond their control, the congregation had gotten crosswise with each other, a lot of them. Let me tell you what they did. They appointed the session, appointed a commission to look into all these matters. And they took people who disagreed with each other and put them on that commission. Locked the door, patted the walls, and told them not to come out until they got it all settled. They spent two hours per week with each other for six months. Not only going through all of their disagreements and misunderstandings, but identifying all of the strained relationships in the church and the community. When they completed their work, they had become reconciled to one another, and they handed over to the session a list of 50 unreconciled relationships. The session appointed an elder for every one of those conflicts. And the session said, zero tolerance on unreconciled relationships. Do you have zero tolerance at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church? Are we going to be family 
You know, family, if you're a healthy family, you're going to have lots of disagreements and you're going to work out your stuff, aren't you? And you're going to show up at the family Christmas party and give each other presents and be kind. You're going to pray for each other and love each other. You'll give money to each other. You'll share your possessions with each other. That's what the church decided to do. It was an amazing thing to watch. And in one of the most amazing moments in my entire 40 years of pastoral ministry, the session then gathered and said, we need to apologize to each other. I opened the meeting with prayer and sat down, and for an hour and a half, one elder after another arose to the lectern, some of whom made magisterial confessional speeches and asked for forgiveness. And after each one spoke, another elder would arise and tell them that in the Lord Jesus Christ, their sins were forgiven them. That's letting your love grow more and more in knowledge. And then he says, in depth of insight, or in all judgment, or all discernment. What does he mean? Well, if I love with my heart, I have two allies. One is knowledge, knowing more about God's Word, knowing God personally and intimately. The other is to be able to apply that knowledge with discernment. You say, well, where do you get that? I know I get the knowledge from the Bible and from Christian fellowship. Where do I get discernment? From prayer. That's the reason Paul prays for it. It's spiritually given. You ask for discernment. How do you apply loving knowledge, uh, knowledge to your brothers and sisters? I had it happen to me one time. I was in my office at Second Presbyterian Church, and uh, one of our uh, executive leaders, Susan Nash, came into my office, and she said, uh, here's a little letter to the editor of the Commercial Appeal, our major paper in Memphis. She said, I thought you might want to read this if you haven't seen it. I said, well, I hadn't seen it. And I read it, and it was some local person who was saying, you know, I am frustrated on Sundays. I drive down Poplar Avenue. It's a six-lane road, but on Sunday morning, there's a big church there that thinks they own the universe, and they park on the street, some on this side, on the north side, some on the south side, run this thing down to four lanes, traffic's backed up. I'm just completely irritated with that church. Well, I read that and I thought, well, that's, you know, that's kind of a weekly event here in Memphis. And I, and I pushed it back toward her and she said, well, she pushed it back and she said, did you notice the name at the bottom? I said, yeah, that looks vaguely familiar. And she said, second violinist in our orchestra. He played last Sunday. And I pushed it back toward her, and this is what I said. The operative word was played, past tense. She pushed it back. And she said these words I'll never forget. You might reconsider that. You might reconsider a lot in view of God's grace to you. Have you always been his friend? Have you always pleased him? Have you always put him first in your life? Did he put you first? Did he send his son to die for you? Is he now the standard, the gold standard for the Christian? You might reconsider. So the Apostle Paul says, here's the immediate proximate burden of my prayer for you is that your knowledge, your love grows more and more. It abounds. It flows over, literally, 
and knowledge and depth of insight. So, for example, when you get to the end of chapter 1, verse 27, he speaks to them about their evangelism. He says, yes, you're loving people, but in your love sometimes you're cowardly. In your love sometimes you don't want to upset the unbeliever, and therefore you pull back and you restrain. These are Sandy Wilson's interpretation. It's not what he says. Here's what he says. I want you to stand together as one man and contend for the gospel together. Now there's love. There's real love. Those of you in schools, you have fellow students who are not believers. Real love is to pray for them and to be sure that they understand the gospel and that you invite them to your church events and your youth group. That's love. And I've been loved that way. I became a Christian at 25 years of age, and I'll tell you why. Just simply because there was a man who was about 40 years old who would not let up. I don't have time to tell you the story. He would not let up. And I did think that he had crossed his boundaries, to be honest with you, as a non-Christian. I did think that he was being a little pushy. And now I want to fall at his feet and kiss them. And thank him for all eternity for what he did for me. There's love with knowledge and discernment. Now you'll see that the apostle goes on and says this love that is overflowing with knowledge and depth of insight leads to purity. That's your inner life. And then it leads to a life that's, that's not stumbling or faltering. So he speaks about your internal life and your external life. That this love leads to that kind of behavior. And furthermore, it leads to a fullness of the fruits of righteousness. You'll see that in verse 10 or so. There's a, you're filled with the fruits of righteousness. What is righteousness? Conformity to the law of God. So when you have love, the very thing you want to do is to figure out what pleases the Lord. And you look to his law to figure out what pleases him. And you want to Take that law into your heart because there's your love manual. The law is a love manual. It shows you how to please the Lord and how to draw near to Him. And your life will simply overflow with fruit of that kind of righteousness because you love the Lord. Your love has grown more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So there's internal purity. External conduct is also conforming to the law of God. And then much fruit flows from it. But look what he says. is at the day of Jesus Christ. So he has ultimate concerns, not only that your love grow now, but that it grows so that at the day that you see the Lord Jesus Christ, he is satisfied and so are you. Nate, maybe you've done this before, but uh, some years ago, I remember just on one of my walks through the woods, I was asking the Lord, Lord, what is it that you want me to care about as a pastor? Not as a father, not as a husband, but as a pastor, what do you want me to care about? And there are about four things. I don't have time to talk about them today, but I'll mention the first one. This was just so clear to me. This is what I care about more than anything else as a pastor. And that is that we get everybody home safely. That's what matters. And Paul says, I want you to grow in knowledge and depth of insight so that at the day of Christ... You're glorified in his presence. He recognizes you as his own. And you recognize him as your savior. That's the ultimate concern. But actually I would say it's the penultimate concern. The ultimate concern is at the very end of verse 11. 
Here's the ultimate concern of the Apostle Paul. Is that after 10, 12 years of church life, you are growing in bringing glory to God. He says all of this is to the glory and praise of God. What is glory? Well, as one scholar has said, the glory of God is like the rays of, a, of the sun. The rays of the sun come to us even breaking in the windows this morning. And those rays give light and heat. And it tells us about the sun itself to some degree. So the rays of the sun are the glory of the sun. Likewise, in God's infinite excellence, His glory is the revelation of those excellencies. And wherever we see His excellence in creation, in providence, in redemption, we can say glory to God. And what is the praise? The praise is the response of sentient beings who behold His glory. And Paul is saying, may God be glorified and may his church praise him for it. That's the ultimate concern. And that is the ultimate reason why our love must grow not only in volume, but in quality, in knowledge, and in all discernment is for the glory of God. Well, you may wonder, how did the Philippians do? Did what was their 100th anniversary like, this little church? Well, I don't know completely, but I can give you one hint as we close. In the early 2nd century, about 135 to 140 A.D., St. Ignatius of Antioch. Antioch was, you know, it was the church that sent out Paul and Barnabas. It was sort of the mission-sending church of, of that era. He was in Antioch, a distinguished early father. And he was now being marched to Rome with 10 soldiers to be executed as part of the persecution against Christians. And uh, we believe that he was executed by being given over to the lions as food for the lions. When the Philippians heard about this, they sent a letter to the bishop of Smyrna just across the Aegean. Uh, and asked Polycarp, the bishops, bishop of Smyrna, would it be possible for them to give aid to Ignatius on his way to Rome? Because going from Antioch to Rome, you would, you would go to, just like Paul did, to Troas, and then you cross the sea, and you'd, you'd get on the Ignatian way that begins at Philippi and take you all the way to Rome, 600 miles. Polycarp wrote them back, and we have that letter. And here's part of what he said. He said, you have followed the example of true love and have helped on their way as opportunity afforded those who were bound in chains. Such chains are diadems of those who have been truly chosen by God and our Lord. I rejoice also that your firmly rooted faith, renowned since early days, endures to the present and produces fruit for our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the Lord.
May this blessed congregation whose faith is firmly rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose love is renowned, grow more and more in their love, in knowledge and depth of insight for the very day of Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Let us pray. Father, it is with deep gratitude and devotion that we approach your throne of grace and thank you for the gift of your love for us, which is a communicable attribute that we may imitate that love, not only toward you, but toward one another. We confess it is easier to love you than it is to love each other. But we would pray that we would show that same love to one another with increasing knowledge and discernment that you, O Lord, may be pleased now and at the day of Jesus' return. And as we now approach your table, Lord, would you please feed our souls and remind us of your great work for us in Jesus Christ, that you would bring joy to our hearts as we fellowship with you at your table, and that you would renew our souls as we look together for the big supper one day to be served by the Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our prayer. We pray with thanksgiving in Jesus' name.